Jesus, last night as I uh, sat in a storm shelter with my neighbors, <laughs> I remembered once again how much we need one another. We confess that we often feel afraid, afraid of things that are outside of our control, afraid of the loss of a loved one. When we hear reports of tornadoes that can spin up in minutes, we don't exactly know what to do but to lean into the peaceful love of God and the love of neighbor. And God, as we remember loved ones who died, and when we hear reports of death in El Reno, we realize the vulnerability of our humanness. God, help us not to be paralyzed by fear, but to continue to move towards our neighbor in love and solidarity. We also pray for Pastor Nick Lee and the leaders and parishioners of the Christ Experience Church as they are in a time of transition. Whenever we have been pastored and loved well, it is difficult for us to say goodbye to a leader who we know and love. We do not know what the next chapter will look like for his congregation, but we know you are faithful. Be with this church that has been such a gift to us. Many of us remember celebrating Easter together two years ago, and we're thankful for the ways we've been able to celebrate the new life you give. We pray for continued resurrection and new life for the Christ Experience Church and for all of us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. I invite you, if you would, to turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 16, starting with verse 9, reading through verse 15. That night, Paul had a vision. A man from Macedonia in northern Greece was standing there, pleading with him, come over to Macedonia and help us. So we decided to leave for Macedonia at once, having concluded that God was calling us to preach the good news there. We boarded a boat at Troas and sailed straight across to the island of Samothrace. And the next day, we landed at Neapolis. From there, we reached Philippi, a major city of that district of Macedonia and a Roman colony, as we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went a little way outside the city to a riverbank where we thought people would be meeting for prayer, and we sat down to speak with some women who had gathered there. One of them was Lydia from Thyatira, a merchant of expensive purple cloth who worshipped God. As she listened to us, the Lord opened her heart, and she accepted what Paul was saying. She and her household were baptized, and she asked us to be her guest. If you agree that I am a true believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my home. And she urged us until we agreed. This is the word of God for the people of God. And we say together, thanks be to God. You may be seated. So many times we refer to the book of Acts as the history, of the bo- as the history book of the New Testament and the church. But what we intend, what we end up doing sometimes is we treat this book like our government teacher has given it to us and uh, he or she is expecting us to uh, answer, uh, answer quiz with dates, you know, once we're all done reading it. But to consider this book a history book is really to sell it short. Frankly, it's misleading just to say that it's just history. It's certainly true that the history and the events in the book of Acts should be considered. And we should certainly do scholarly, critical, historical work when it comes to Acts. And we should look at it from a historical point of view. But you need to know that Acts is actually a piece of art. It's Luke's masterpiece. 
It's a literary work that speaks of a different kind of way, a salvific way, a way that has the ability to save us all. And it saves us but by drawing us in to consider ourselves and our neighbors and the activity of this mysterious God who works in a, in a way that we, have, that we have never expected before. You know, this is exactly what art does. It draws us in. Art has the capacity to make us uncomfortable. Sometimes it changes our perspective. Sometimes when we encounter art, we actually have to wait and be patient. Sometimes it makes us mad when we see and look at art. Sometimes we feel glee. But above all, art actually gives us the space to find our way through the story that's being told by someone else. Now, for people who like to maintain control, that's a really hard thing to do. It's no wonder that certain places in the world actually, actually um, control the control of the communication that, that art does. Or in some por- portions of the world, art is actually controlled. And in some places, it's actually thrown away altogether. You know Hitler stole art, right? And the reason he stole art is because he wanted to control the cultural and the, the personal narratives of people. Education without art and music and imagination and exploration is just propaganda. And propaganda is used with the intention of, of indoctrination. And indoctrination doesn't make good humans. It makes obedient robots. Before now, this is going to sound weird, but before we judge Hitler's misuse of art, we need to look at our own history to, say, to, to admit that we have misused art as well. Because Luther, Martin Luther, the great church reformer of the 16th century, condemned ver, ver, uh, visual art well before Hitler ever did. And he did it in order to distinguish himself from the Catholic church. The, 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 the protesting revolution that we call the Protestant Reformation stripped the church of all visual art. And maybe that's why the church is actually so bad at art. We have juvenilized faith and God by reducing art to three chord progressions and anecdotal lyrics. But art is really good storytelling. It's complex and it's personal and it's wonderful. And I think we need to capture that. This last week for me was Art Thursday. My Thursday of this week was bookended by art. I got to be a part of two different events that featured artists that specialized in different genres. The first group, which met during the morning, reviewed one of my favorite books ever, Learning to Walk in the Dark, which was written by a person that I've talked to you before, one of my favorite authors, Barbara Brown Taylor. If you've not read this book, I encourage you to read it. No one can turn an image, create a metaphor, paint a picture, or give words to my journey like she can. And when my world is fast-paced and urgent all the time, she calls to me, she calls me to be present in wonder and to, and to think about the sacred that is around me. She convinces me that indeed the world is actually our altar. The world is sacramental. It is a place of prayer. Listen to what she says. She says, we come to see what is here, to discover who we are in the presence 
of what we find. I think that might be one of the things that led Paul and Silas and Timothy to the place just outside of town here in our text. I have some friends that that have been to this spot in, on the other side of the world, and they say they can't describe its natural beauty. It's too hard to describe. No wonder it's this place where people gathered for prayer. It was like an altar to them. The natural beauty was sacramental. And Barbara Brown Taylor's book is a reflection of her own spiritual journey through the medium of, of writing a book. And she explores fears and tragedies in her life. And she comes with honesty and sensitivity, even in the midst of her doubt, only to find that the same God who is there in the sunshine is also the one that is present in the darkness. She, um, if you don't know, Barbara Brown Taylor was, an or, was ordained as an Episcopal priest, or, but around the age of 50, she, she began to enter into this existential and spiritual struggle. And I, I'm not sure those two things are mutually exclusive, but she left parish work, went on a psychological and spiritual journey, wondering if those things that she was told and that those things that she had told others for years that were sacred, she wondered if they actually were. She was a woman like Lydia who came seeking honest faith. Luke tells us that's what Lydia was like. And it was in the night, Taylor says, where her heart was opened and she noticed a unique and creative world that envelops her. It was on the side of the river there where Lydia opened her heart and met God who was seeking her as well. Now, one of the things that Barbara Brown Taylor does is she points out that that many of us will get up for a sunrise because we want to see how it looks. Uh, we, but do we ever intentionally ever set time aside to make sure that we don't miss the moonrise tonight? Expecta- expecting that when we see the moonrise with anticipation that there might just be something divine in the night in the same way that the divine comes with new joy in the morning. She says that she says that that might be something that we should be taking notice of because it's only in the dark where we find unique nuggets of goodness. Only in the dark do we realize that, hey, the moon never rolls over the sky in the same way it's twice. Can you feel her art? It wasn't in the brilliance of the day, she said, that she found God. She said she found God as she was there learning to navigate her night. It's easy to find God, she says, as he stands in the open doors of opportunities. It's easy to see God in the sunshine, the happiest of moments, the joy, the clarity. God is in the beams that burst on your face and warm your back in the middle of the day. But she says she finds God in the grief. And the burdens and the bags that are just impossible to lay down. And the times when you remember that you are a failure and you've missed opportunity. God, she says, is even there in those roadblocks. And Taylor, uh, once she entered into this night, her eyes began to adjust. And she began to realize that darkness is actually a good thing. It's a gift. I've come to learn that Barbara Brown Taylor's book, because she is an artist, is this space that she has created because she is needed to tell her story. And I connect, my story connects deeply with her story. And I, I think that that's what we need. I think we need space. 
space that we create to share our experiences, to ask our questions, and to tell our stories so that we might connect well with others. And that's what art does. Music, literature, the visual arts, that's what they do for us. Have you ever sang Silent Night in a congregation? Have you ever stared at Starry Night? Art gives us the space to connect with another period of time. It gives us the ability to connect with another group of people, another individual maybe. It's the space that's given so permission is granted and we might be able to have space then to share our own stories when we need to. My Thursday ended in the same way it began because I got to sit alongside 30 or so new friends in this living room as I listened to uh, a live concert, a living room concert of Derek Webb. He's a singer-songwriter who uses his medium as a, as, as a, he uses his music as a medium for exploring the world from his vantage point. I've listened to Derek Webb since the mid-90s when I heard his band as they came through the university where I attended. He inspired me, yes, even me, to pick up a guitar. And while I've never been that good, there was something in me that really wanted to express myself in the same way he did. His journey, like Barbara Brown Taylor's, has been an honest pursuit, which has been reflected in his music. His art is a confession about the weaving in and out of certainty that's been a part of his journey. One line in one of his songs, A Tempest in a Teacup, is this. Maybe you resonate with this. Something deep down in my heart, something that made me who I was, invisible. By offering to share his story and to create space and to share his journey, he's connected with others who have not had the space to share their stories, who too feel invisible. We absolutely need space to tell our stories. It's essential. And we should be hospitable enough to allow others to tell their stories and, and, and when people are hospitable to us by creating space to tell our story, we should never reject that offer. Maya Angelou said, there is no greater agony than bearing an untold story within you. Which is why it is absolutely incredible, so wonderful, so remarkable, so forward-thinking that Luke, in this text, gives space for a first-century woman named Lydia to have her story told. This is a remarkable text. In this book, Luke gives space for a woman to tell her story. But before that, um, before we just see it as that, we need to consider the idea that there was something that was going on well before Luke because providence, it seems, was working behind the scenes and the space that Luke creates was actually the space that God was creating through Luke. The text tells us that Paul and Silas and Timothy had intentions on traveling and visiting these other places to care and provide pastoral counsel to the churches in the region. However, this band of travelers became increasingly frustrated because they were kept from preaching by the Holy Spirit, the text says. And another place it says the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to go where they intended to go. But one night, Paul has a vision of a man who is calling out to him from Macedonia. He's asking him for help. And so he and his companions go. 
Now, this is how it would usually work. Paul would go to a new town. He would put on his religious regalia from head to toe. And then he would head on over to the synagogue to share the good news. He was a Jew, but he had unique privileges. And that's a key word. He had unique privileges because he was a Roman citizen. And he was trained in like the the best Ivy League schools of the day. Was famous throughout. Was the equivalent of a PhD. And in most towns, when they saw him rolling up, they would begin to roll out the red carpet. I mean, he had privilege. But apparently, the synagogue didn't do that in the town that they rolled into, or, it, or there may not have been a synagogue, because Paul's traveling companions find themselves on the outskirts of town, on the margins. Now take notice, that's a little detail that's important. He's out on the margins. They say the devil is in the details, but in this case, God is in the details of this story, there and the margins. And that's when they run into Lydia, a woman like Barbara Brown Taylor, a successful woman, still though a woman on the margins who is seeking a more honest faith. You know, I, I've noticed that we never hear throughout Acts what happened to the man in Paul's vision. You notice that? We never hear. Did, did Paul make a mistake about the vision? He heard the man calling out to him from there in Macedonia, come help us. Maybe it was just some bad pizza he ate the night before and he had a weird dream. If the vision was real, did that man ever get the help that he needed? Perhaps, perhaps he didn't. Luke leaves the ending there of that story to our imagination. But he does include the detail because... It leads to the story that he does want to tell. And Luke begins to frame his literary masterpiece to make sure that space is created so that Lydia's story can be told. I wonder if, I wonder if Luke thought to himself, self, you know, in the salvation story, there are plenty of men's stories. We don't need another one. However, And think about this. However, there are millions, if not billions, of untold stories of women throughout history. How many women are there that have been told, you have no story to share? I think Luke does an amazing thing. He uses his privilege to peek into the reality of this this new upside-down community that God is making. You know, this might be the first time in the old structure, the old top-down system, the old patriarchal narrative begins to unravel here with Luke. Several months ago, I was invited by my friend, Dr. Lena Caruso, to go be a part of a discussion in, in a class that she was teaching on diversity. And a student asked me a question, something like, you know, you are a white male with privilege, so what do you do with that? I confess to him that honestly, I, I, I was probably the only one that did not recognize the, the, the privileges that I have been afforded. I'm like that fish who, when swimming, uh, has another fish that comes by and it says, how's the water? And, you know, I'm the one that responds with, what, what's water, you know? 
Privilege is so my world. Being in a position of power is so my world. Having a platform just like this to share my ideas is so my world. Being given opportunities is so my world that I don't even realize that it's my world. Or worse yet, I don't realize that it's not somebody else's world. So I said to the student, well, I confess, I have no idea what I do with my responsibilities because I'm a white, privileged male in America. All I know is that it makes me need, now more than ever, my sister Lena. I need to hear her story to be be vulnerable enough so that she might be able to speak newness into me. Something remarkable happens in the story. Lydia is baptized. And yeah, that is really good. But then she, she does something amazing. She takes on the very virtues that God had in mind when God started to orchestrate this whole thing in a whole new way that her male privileged friends could never do. Do you know what she says? Come stay at my house. Let me host you. She is the example of hospitality. You know, I have learned as a privileged person through my wife, Holly, and Barbara Brown Taylor, and Dr. Lena, and Liliana and Estella Risa, and Pastors Mikhail and Andrea and Hope, and my daughter, Annabelle, and, and, and Selene Parada, and, and my friends from the Christ Experience, and, and Ezekiel and Prana, and, and a host of other people that I'm coming to realize that one of the things that I do with my privilege is to give space for others to tell their story. And the way that I make the space is by surrendering to their hospitality. That, that seems really backwards. In the gospel of Luke chapter 10, Jesus says to his followers, don't just be hospitable. You need to accept the hospitality of others. He says, don't just host others, be hosted by others. Now, I've never really understood what this means because I have no idea that I'm swimming in water. But when others, when others act hospitably and, and when others hospitably point it out that I'm in water, when they give opportunity to welcome me in, into their stories and into their lives, into a whole new way of living, the result is a whole new me. The result is a whole new us. There is a, there's a theological word for this. It's called sanctification. It means that we're being made into the holy likeness of Jesus. Just a few minutes ago, we confessed that we want to be good and useful neighbors. Well, Paul said it this way, I become all things to all people. But what does that really mean? I think he means that instead of, instead of calling our neighbors to become like us, the best type of neighborliness is when we become like them. So I've got a clip of something I saw. Dr. Paul Jones showed me this. And I think it, I think it is the gospel. So I want you to see this video. Finally here tonight, everybody seems to be talking in a very quiet neighborhood. Here's Steve Hartman on the road. At the far end of Islington Road in Newton, Massachusetts, lives a little girl near and dear to the neighborhood. Two-year-old Samantha Savitz is deaf, but boy, does she love to talk to anyone who knows sign language. Her parents, Raphael and Glenda. Yeah, she's super engaging. She wants to, you know, chat up with anybody. Yeah, her whole personality changes when it's someone who 
can communicate with her. Likewise, if someone can't, well, that makes Sam just a little sad. Her desire for engagement has been painfully obvious to everyone in the neighborhood. Whenever they see her on a walker in her yard, and Sam tries to be neighborly, they find themselves at a frustrating loss for words. I didn't know what to say back. Wouldn't you like to talk to her? You know, basic conversation that one would have with a child. Asking her about her day. And make her feel that she is part of the neighborhood. Just be her friend. Unfortunately, this isn't something you can solve with a casserole. You'd need the whole community to learn sign language, just for a little two-year-old girl. Can't expect neighbors to do that. You can only appreciate them when they do. On their own, Sam's neighbors got together, hired an instructor, and are now fully immersed in an American Sign Language class. The teacher, Reese McGovern, says this is remarkable because a lot of times even the parents of deaf children don't bother to learn sign language. But here, Sam has a full community that's signing and communicating with her and her family, and it is a beautiful story. And he says this level of inclusion will almost certainly guarantee a happier, more well-adjusted Sam, which is why her parents say there aren't words in any language to express their gratitude. It's, yeah, it's, it's really shocking and beautiful. We are so fortunate. In fact, they say they're already seeing a difference in their daughter. You should see her when she comes in at the end of class. The first thing she says to us is, friend. I think your heart would melt just as mine did. Sometimes it feels like America is losing its sense of community. But then you hear about a place like this, where the village it takes to raise a child is alive and well, and here to remind us that what makes a good neighborhood is nothing more than good neighbors. Steve Hartman, On the Road, in Newton, Massachusetts. He gets me up. I confess to those students in that class, you know, I've been praying, Lord, I'm not using the responsibilities that I have because I don't have enough Hispanic friends. I don't have enough Chinese friends, Vietnamese friends, Burmese friends, African-American friends, irreligious friends, gay or lesbian friends. That's one of the reasons why I wanted to start this church. It was to create a space for people to be able to tell their stories because they need to tell them. And more importantly, maybe I need to hear them. You know, most churches deal with their neighbors just like we do, just we think like Americans, you know, we don't consider our privilege. So we do really helpful things like welcome the least of these, but we don't actually realize that we are the least of these. And we are actually in need of our neighbors. So I've been thinking about this, and I've been really praying about it. And we are going to be discussing this a lot over the next few months as a church. We have a lot of neighbors whose first language is Spanish. Several come to this congregation and work really hard to be a part of this congregation. It's a good first step, I think, that we give out Bibles in Spanish. But for those of us who are English speakers, we still have all the advantages now, our natural tendency would be to think how we would, you know, how we would minister to our neighbors uh, and how we would go about doing that. And so what we would do is, you know, we put out a sign and we would host English classes. 
I've, I've led English as second language classes in church, and it's a wonderful and very helpful service. But I think we want to be a different kind of neighborhood. We want to be different kinds of neighbors. We want to be good and useful neighbors. So in the fall, we will not be hosting English classes for our neighbors. We're going to be hosting Spanish classes for our congregation. This Easter, we, this is Easter, and we need to be thinking in new ways and be seeing things with new eyes. We need to be asking really important questions like, what kinds of neighbors might we be if, if we all, what kind of neighbors might we be if we all knew this wonderful, responsive reading, this creed? What if we all together knew this in Spanish? Spanish 101, what if we started there? What if we asked our Spanish-speaking neighbors to come and teach us uh, how, we, how we can greet one another in appropriate ways? What kind of neighbors might we be if we release our power and instead of forcing others to become what we are to become who they are? In what ways could we put aside our insecurity and our power so that others might be able to have space to share their story so that they might speak to us in a new way that actually changes us? Might, if we did these things, might we experience a new way by which we, by which we understand amigo, amiga, friend, this is Easter, and we get, to, we get to find ways to see things differently. We have been gifted with the privilege of being able to hear the stories of others and to be hosted by them. We have been gifted with the ability and the space to create space and to also step into the space of others so that we might participate in their story. Friends, this is the story of Jesus. This is why we tell the stories of the saints. This is why we tell the stories and we remember the lives of the martyrs. This is why we roll a slideshow here on Memorial Day. We have to find ways to allow our stories to connect us to one another. In sharing our stories, we find out actually how similar we are. We actually teach one another that we're really alike in this universe. And it's, it's for us to share and for us to enjoy. And to do that, to create space and to step into another space, is to find our stories connected so that we can see how this whole God remaking the world thing plays out. We spend very little time sharing our stories. Instead, what we do is we, you know, we compare stats. Our stats actually distinguish us from others, whether that be our test scores or our grade point average or our little league batting average or how much is deposited in our checking account or what's in our portfolio. But sometimes it comes in the form of stated doctrines or collective beliefs or creeds, which I think it makes it amazing that the very first controversy in Acts happened in in Acts chapter 15. The expanding movement of Jesus that began in Jerusalem was primarily a, G a Jewish movement. But like all groups, these people, once they accepted Jesus, they start and they organized themselves. They began to create a list of standards, stats, so they might be able to determine the variables that distinguish them from others. 
So this council was formed, famously known as the Council of Jerusalem, and it was there where they decided who we were and who they were, and were we going to let them in? Nothing and no other thing has contributed more to the fractions we see on this planet than we and them labels. And there, it, there was a whole huge group of early Christians that didn't want them to be a part of us. And they asked the question, will this Jewish movement welcome the uncircumcised Gentiles? Well, that's when the big three, that's when they came marching into Jerusalem to face the council Paul, Peter, and James. And they showed up and put a Ruth Bader Ginsburg type slap down on this group of leaders by saying, our single fundamental belief is this, that Israel's Messiah, the son of David, the son of God was crucified, died, and was raised again. And that has raised, that, that has opened up the pathway of inclusion for the entire world. I think that is why this text is so brilliant Easter, resurrection has changed everything. And if you read all of Acts, you'll notice that Luke tells a story. And that in Acts chapter 1 through 15, he's intentionally telling the story of the church in third person. They did this and they did that. But then in a very sneaky way, but with intention, he changes here in this chapter where we are to first person. We put out to sea. We stayed for several days. We sat down and had a conversation with some women there. And Lydia, that wonderful woman whose story got told, became the host of this new alternative community. And as we learn her story today, becomes the host to this new alternative community as well. You notice in this community, the tables have turned There's no longer a we and them, it is us. A community that's not distinguished by stats, but comes together through a collective set of virtues that are on display here at this table of grace. And we say all, all are welcome into the baptism of grace. All are welcome into the story of Jesus's death and resurrection. And you are welcome into our story. And because this is the beginning of our transformation. Paul was preaching the good news while traveling around. One place that he went was to Galatia. And then he penned these famous words when he wrote to them later. In Christ's family, there can be no division into Jew and non-Jew, slave and free, male and female. Among you, you are now all equal. That, is, that means that we all have a common relationship with Jesus Christ. Also, since, your heart, since you are Christ's family, then you're Abraham's famous descendant, heirs according to the covenant promise. These virtues and this promise is seen at this table. And I'm going to invite you to this table to share in fellowship, brotherhood and sisterhood, aunt and unclehood, surrogate grandparenthood with me. You know, we share communion every single week because it reminds us that we, are, we really do belong to one another. 
And by the power of God's Spirit, Jesus becomes the demonstration of this new alternative community for us. He, he, he is the invitation of that new way. He is the empowerment that things as they were don't always have to now be things as they are. This is how our individual stories weave themselves into one amazing collective story. This is what we mean when we say God died in solidarity with us. In the person of Jesus, God gave away power, created space, became like us so that we could become like him. And friends, now we're not alone. We belong to God and we belong to one another. So I want to invite you to this table of grace. Everyone who is open to believe in this good work, that grace is offered to you. And that you can be, you are adopted. You are invited to be adopted into this good family. That you do not have to be alone. You belong to us and you belong to God. If that is you, you are welcome to this table. So I want to remind you that in his generosity, Jesus, on the night before he was betrayed by those he came to save, he took the, he took the bread and he broke it at dinner. And he, he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And whenever you eat it, I want you to know the new covenant. And then in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he held it up and he said, this cup represents the new promise, the new covenant. It is my blood, which has been poured out for you. I give myself to you. And whenever you drink this, I want you to do so in affectionate remembrance of me. Everybody who is open to this way of grace, who has a story to tell, Everyone who wants to engage this community and this God in this way is invited to this table. So I want to let you know we've put aside all barriers that we can. Our bread is gluten-free. Our wine is non-alcoholic. I invite you to leave the left side of your aisle and come down the aisle, left side of your row and come down the aisle with your hands cupped, ready to receive that which is good and that which comes from God. We do not take communion here. We receive it. It is a gift. So come approach these servers. Listen to what they have to say. Dip the bread into the cup and eat it and be grateful. If for any reason you're unable to come down our aisle, I just invite you to wave at Andrea and she would love to come and serve you. Friends, you are welcome to this table. And you are welcome to share your story. And you are welcome in this community. So I invite you to come when you are ready.